Would you pray with me? Father, may these spoken words be faithful to the written word and lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So in June of this year, Gallup, which has measured public confidence in American institutions for more than four decades, reported that 2022 marks a new low in public confidence for virtually every American institution. All three branches of the federal government, only 25% of Americans have confidence in the Supreme Court, <clears throat> the presidency is at 23%, and Congress is at 7%. Five other social institutions are at their lowest points in at least three decades of measurement, including the church, 31%, newspapers, 16%, the criminal justice system at 14%, big business at 14%. In fact, the only institutions in Gallup's survey that measured over 50% with the public were small businesses in the military, and even those had gone down from just one year prior. We are experiencing a full-blown institutional crisis. And more fundamentally, we confront a crisis of authority. We do not trust those in positions of authority to act with wisdom, fairness, or frankly, competence. And to compound this lack of trust in institutions, as individuals, we are also increasingly disposed to demand our own unbounded freedom to accept or reject whatever residual authority remains, competent or otherwise. We bristle at the notion that another might exercise command over us. We insist that even nature itself yield way as we rapidly employ technological innovation to further expand our sphere of independent action. If we were to capture this emerging ethos in a phrase, we might uh, borrow from the famous or perhaps infamous words of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. You knew you were gonna get some of that, right? In the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, in that decision, in which Justice Kennedy voted to uphold Roe versus Wade, he wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, of course, this sounds more in philosophy than law, but doesn't express the spirit of our age. Rejection of authority in favor of the spirit of autonomy, which literally means the notion that we are each makers of our own law, autonomous, self-law, a law unto ourselves. In short, we are hip deep in a civilization-wide experiment in the abandoning of authority in favor of autonomy. Now, as David mentioned, this fall we're in this sermon series taking us through the Gospel of Mark, entitled Jesus the One. And each week we're looking at a different element of Jesus Christ's character. So far, we've covered Jesus the beloved Son of God and Jesus the One with compassion. Today we turn to Jesus the One with authority. So you may reasonably ask, okay, so what does Gallup polls and retired Supreme Court justices musings have to do with a 2,000-year-old account of Jesus calming the stormy waters of the Sea of Galilee? So to an attempt an answer to that question, would you join me in taking a look at Mark's account? You just read it. It's on page four of your service leaflet. It's a brief story, but a powerful one, of course, very well known as well. And I want to back up. You don't have this in your your service leaflet, but if you back up before the text you have, Jesus has spent the day teaching to a large group of people on the shores of the, of the Sea of Galilee. 
In fact, Mark notes the crowd was so large that Jesus gets into a boat on the shore. Everybody else spreads out along the shoreline and spends the day teaching. And on that day, he presents some of the most well-known teachings we have. The parable of the sower. The parable of the lampstand. The parable of the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed. Where we pick up, it's the end of this long day. And Jesus is exhausted. And if you ever spent any time on your feet up in front of people, you know it can wear you out, especially if you do it all day. So at the day's end, and this is where we pick up, Jesus decides to cross the Sea of Galilee. So all the disciples pile into the boat, and they head across. Jesus, of course, is exhausted, falls asleep. Then we read that a great windstorm arose, and the Sea of Galilee at that time was known for these fierce sort of squalls that would emerge very quickly. And you can imagine Peter and the other disciples furiously bailing out water, pulling in the sails, desperately trying to stay afloat. Now remember, they're fishermen. At least many of them are. And of course, Jesus has the gall to be sleeping through the whole thing. Or at least he tries to. Because Mark then tells us the disciples wake him and say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You get the sense that they're one, shocked that he's so indifferent, just sleeping. And two, they're upset that he's not pitching in and bailing out with the rest of them. So you can almost picture Peter standing over this groggy Jesus, bucket in hand, like, come on. But it's here that Mark throws us for a loop. Rather than grabbing a bucket and joining the others to try to bail this thing out, Jesus stands up, looks out at the water and the wind, and kind of tells him, just knock it off. Peace. Be still. Now this, of course, is not what the disciples expected of him, and Jesus knows it. And if you look, he calls them on it. He asks them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now I want to pause here, because I think Mark is suggesting to us that this question contains more than what you see on the surface. There's a subtext, there's a more profound question lurking in, in his question. And that is, do you still not know who I am? And then Mark lets us know that their answer is, well, no, we really don't. The disciples aren't relieved that he calmed the storm with a word. They're terrified. Remember, here today, we have the benefit of the New Testament. We, we, we know the rest of the story. We know where this is going. We know about Jesus' identity with the Father. At this point in the disciples' journey, they don't know this. All they've figured out so far is there's a lot more to their teacher than they realize. So they ask again, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that brings us to the question before us this morning. Who is this? And our answer, at least Mark's answer in chapter 4, is that Jesus is the one who has authority. And if just for a moment, I may take a moment to consider the nature of what we mean when we say authority. It's about more than just power. If you think about power, power is the capacity to do something. Authority is when that capacity or that power is exercised with legitimacy. So when we say that Jesus is the one who has authority, we mean not only that Jesus has the power, in this case in our story, over nature, but that his exercise of that power is legitimate. We can have confidence in it. By way of comparison, the devil has power, but only God has authority. 
And again, we see Jesus here exercising his authority over the strongest forces known to mankind, the forces of nature. And I want to pause here because there's something else Mark is doing in this passage. See, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, wind and water have a symbolic role as evidence of divine authority. In the scripture, the psalmist tells us, God caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. The psalmist tells us, God brings forth the wind from his treasuries. The prophet Amos describes God as he who forms mountains and creates the wind. In Genesis, God ends the flood by causing a wind to pass over the earth and the waters recede. He uses wind to bring locusts into Egypt and then wind to drive them out. He causes the wind to bring quail to the wandering Israelites in Exodus 10. You get the idea. Power over the wind is divine power. Similarly, the sea in antiquity represents danger and power. It's often populated by these great and terrible creatures. If you know in Job's, in the book of Job, the Leviathan, the sort of mythic figure. The prophet Amos tells us that God calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Again, in Job, we read that God quiets the sea with his power. And indeed, one of the first divine acts recorded in scripture, Genesis 1, the spirit of God hovers over the waters and then God acts to divide light from darkness, water from land. So to the ancients then, and to the disciples, and to Mark's readers in the first century, wind and sea are symbolic sources of divine power and authority. Only God works in wind and water. Human beings are subjects of those remarkable forces. So what Mark is showing us here is the absolute divine authority of Christ. And again, remember, it's not until much later in Mark's gospel that the disciples kind of get this. Chapter 8, four chapters later, Peter finally realizes it. But at the moment of our story, Jesus is Peter's teacher, not yet his Lord. And in a way, the intervening chapters of Mark, which we may be getting to later in the fall, are further demonstrations of divine authority and power. Jesus' authority over demons, over death, sickness, disease, hunger, deafness, blindness. But again, Peter's declaration I want us to, I want us to attend to. Because Peter first gives the correct answer to the question, who is this? He says, you are the Christ. What Peter realizes that Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Savior, chosen to bring salvation to mankind. In other words, the teacher in chapter 4 is in truth the Lord of all creation. He is the one who has authority, and he is the one with legitimate divine power. As such, Jesus invites us to submit to his authority just as the waves and winds submit to his word, and to enjoy his peace. Jesus calms the stormy waters. Now, earlier I raised the, the notion of institutional failure as a failure of authority. And in a sense, this is inevitable when we place our trust in human authority rather than God. Where human institutions and human efforts fail, Jesus Christ stands strong. But lest we mistake peace of soul for material comfort or ease, remember, after Peter declares Jesus is the Christ, what does Jesus almost immediately do? He begins to predict his own death. And when he does that, we read that the disciples are astonished and afraid. That happens a lot. They're you know, fearful. 
Jesus no longer looks familiar to them. He looks different. And he looks different to us as well. Now, you might remember if you were here last week, David acknowledged that he likes the comforting or tender Jesus better than the commanding Jesus. And we all chuckled because we were, yeah, pretty much, okay. Yes, I do too. I would like, nonetheless, to push David's point a bit. This Jesus, the Jesus who commands nature, who willingly and purposefully strides to his own death, is alien and strange. Even those who knew him well, or at least thought they did, were literally amazed and terrified. And the great English evangelist and teacher Oswald Chambers, you may know him as the author of My Utmost for His Highest, I think captures this well. He writes, at the beginning we were sure we knew all about Jesus Christ. It was a delight to sell all and to fling ourselves out in a hardihood of love. But now we're not quite so sure. Jesus is on in front and he looks strange. As the scripture says, Jesus went before them and they were amazed. There is an aspect of Jesus that chills the heart of a disciple to the core and makes the whole spiritual life gasp for breath. This strange being with his face set like flint and his striding determination strikes terror into me. He is no longer counselor and comrade. He's taken up with a point of view I know nothing about. And I am amazed at him. At first I was confident that I understood him, but now I'm not so sure. I begin to realize there is a distance between Jesus Christ and me. I can no longer be familiar with him. He is ahead of me, and he never turns around. I have no idea where he's going, and the goal has become strangely far off. I think this is the Jesus the disciples glimpse in our passage. Now what they don't know then, and Chambers observes this, is that Jesus Christ had to fathom every sin and sorrow man could experience. And that is what makes him strange. When we see him in this aspect, we do not know him or recognize one feature of his life. He is out in front. This is the Jesus who commands, the one with authority. He has literally conquered sin and death. Yes, he is tender. His touch mends the broken reed. But remember, when he ascends, all authority on heaven and earth is given to him. In a sense, the collapse of authority that I described at the beginning of my sermon is a gift because it makes it even clearer to us that Jesus Christ is worthy of our complete submission, trust, and confidence. Now, this still leaves us with the problem I raised of autonomy. We don't really want to submit to anyone's authority. This is, of course, our original sin. We want autonomy. We want to make our own law and be our own God. And I'd suggest we imagine we can save ourselves. We can stand in for Christ. And just consider all the different ways we do this in lieu of submitting to Christ's authority. Self-help, self-improvement, wellness, workaholic grit, hedonism, losing ourselves in nostalgia, making politics our God, distracting ourselves with what is at best mindless entertainment and at worst some of the darker corners of the internet. We use and then abuse substances and we use and abuse one another. And the truth is that none of this really works anyway. Self-help and self-improvement rarely last longer than the last book we read. There's always seven more habits, five more love languages, 10 more rules for positive thinking, 12 rules for life, 12 more rules for life. <laughs> Workaholics finally run out of steam, hopefully before they alienate their friends and families. Pleasures are fleeting and desire is restless. 
Nostalgia leaves us even more depressed when we realize the past is well and truly gone. Politics is a shambling train wreck. Opportunities for distraction are utterly endless, and yet they leave us largely empty and increasingly bored. Substances work for a time, but they eventually demand, demand of us far more than we demand of them. And look, every single one of us has tried or is trying one or more of these. We've tried out the autonomous self. We've doubled down on it. Well, how's that working for us collectively? Not well. Over the last two decades, the rate at which people take their own lives has gone up 30%. The anxiety rate, also up 30%, and up 84% among those 18 to 25. 10% fewer people are married. The number of people who've never married has increased by 50%. And the current marriage rate is the lowest on record. Unmarried childbirth, however, has increased 40%. And I'm gonna go even closer. Just in the last year, drug overdose deaths are up 28%. So, if we are more free than we've ever been, if we're autonomous, we're not exactly enjoying our freedom, and we certainly aren't using it well. Put simply, without Christ, we are the disciples out on the raging sea with a bailing bucket in a sinking ship. So what I'm getting at here, and I think in a sense what the entire gospel presents to us, is the fact that we, as a society, and as individuals, confront a clear, unambiguous choice. And just to be clear about this, it's not a moralistic choice of whether you live by a set of rules or impose a particular set of rules. It's a choice to whom will we submit. Will we serve ourselves? Will we serve something in the creative world? Or will we submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who commands the wind and the sea, the one who has authority over the spirit world, over illness, disease, blindness, and yes, the one who has conquered death, the one to whom is given all authority on heaven and earth. The English writer and recent Christian convert, Paul Kingsnorth, this was just last week, he was musing on the death of the queen. He said, there is a throne at the heart of every culture, whether we know it or not. And if we cast out its previous inhabitant, and the entire worldview that went along with it, we had better understand what we plan to replace it with. Someone or something is going to sit on that throne whether we know it or not. Similarly, David Foster Wallace, no believer he, also observed, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. Everyone has a throne in their own heart, and you can be sure that something or someone is going to sit on that throne. Now the world either insists that there is no throne, which is completely silly and transparently ridiculous, or it demands that only the free and autonomous self perch atop the seat. And if not before now, Certainly in 2022, we can look around us and see that this is the case, and further, we have evidence as to where the collapse of authority and enthroning ourselves leads. When everyone has authority, no one has authority. And when we seek to make our own law for ourselves, we eventually make ourselves miserable because complete self-command is beyond us. We lack the authority. Jesus invites us to something else, 
He invites us to accept his authority, to submit to his command and enjoy his peace, a peace of soul that passes understanding. Remember, in calming the waters with his voice and in demonstrating his authority and power, Jesus' twofold question for each of us is, don't you know who I am? And if you do know who I am, whom will you serve? May each of us have the faith and the confidence in Jesus' authority to give Joshua's answer. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.